Section twenty eight of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume One, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter six, verses twenty eight to thirty four. The ignorance of natural man, the honor Christ puts on faith, the high privileges of Christ's hearers over those of the Jews in the wilderness. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter six, verses twenty eight to thirty four. Then said they unto him, What shall we do, that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. These verses form the beginning of one of the most remarkable passages in the Gospels. None, perhaps, of our Lord's discourses has occasioned more controversy, and has been more misunderstood, than that which we find in the sixth chapter of John. We should observe, for one thing, in these verses, the spiritual ignorance and unbelief of the natural man. Twice over we see this brought out and exemplified. When our Lord bade his hearers labor for the meat which endureth to eternal life, they immediately began to think of works to be done, and a goodness of their own to be established. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Doing, 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 was their only idea of the way to heaven. Again, when our Lord spoke of himself as one sent from God, and the need of believing on him at once, they turned round with the question, What sign showest thou? What dost thou work? Fresh from the mighty miracle of the loaves and fishes, one might have thought that they had a sign sufficient to convince them. Taught by our Lord Jesus Christ himself, one might have expected a greater readiness to believe. But alas, there are no limits to man's dullness, prejudice, and unbelief in spiritual matters. It is a striking fact that the only thing our Lord is said to have marveled at during his earthly ministry was man's unbelief. Mark chapter 6 verse 6 we shall do well to remember this if we ever try to do good to others in the matter of religion. We must not be cast down because our words are not believed, and our efforts seem thrown away. We must not complain of it as a strange thing, and suppose that the people we have to deal with are peculiarly stubborn and hard. We must recollect that this is the very cup which our Lord had to drink, and like Him we must patiently work on. If even He, so perfect and so plain a teacher was not believed what right have we to wonder if men do not believe us happy are the ministers and missionaries and teachers who keep these things in mind it will save them much bitter disappointment in working for god it is of first importance to understand what we must expect in man few things are so little realized as the extent of human unbelief we should observe, for another thing, in these verses, the high honor Christ puts on faith in himself. The Jews had asked him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? In reply he says, 
this is the work of god that ye believe on him whom he has sent a truly striking and remarkable expression if any two things are put in strong contrast in the new testament they are faith and works not working but believing not of works but through faith are words familiar to all careful bible readers yet here the great head of the church declares that believing on him is the highest and greatest of all works it is the work of god doubtless our lord did not mean that there is anything meritorious in believing men's faith at the very best is feeble and defective regarded as a work it cannot stand the severity of god's judgment deserve pardon or purchase heaven but our lord did mean that faith in himself as the only saviour is the first act of the soul which god requires at a sinner's hands till a man believes on jesus and rests on jesus as a lost sinner he is nothing our lord did mean that faith in himself is that act of the soul which specially pleases god when the father sees a sinner casting aside his own righteousness and simply trusting in his dear son he is well pleased without such faith it is impossible to please god our lord did mean that faith in himself is the root of all saving religion there is no life in a man till he believes above all our lord did mean that faith in himself is the hardest of all spiritual acts in the natural man did the jews want something to do in religion let them know that the greatest thing that they had to do was to cast aside their pride confess their guilt and need and humbly believe let all who know anything of true faith thank god and rejoice blessed are they that believe it is an attainment which many of the wise of this world have never yet reached we may feel ourselves poor weak sinners but do we believe we may fail and come short in many things but do we believe he that has learned to feel his sins and to trust christ as a saviour has learned the two hardest and greatest lessons in christianity he has been in the best of schools he has been taught by the holy ghost we shall observe lastly in these verses the far greater privileges of christ's hearers than of those who lived in the times of moses wonderful and miraculous as the manna was which fell from heaven it was nothing in comparison to the true bread which christ had to bestow on his disciples he himself was the bread of god who had come down from heaven to give life to the world the bread which fell in the days of moses could only feed and satisfy the body the son of man had come to feed the soul the bread which fell in the days of moses was only for the benefit of israel the son of man had come to offer eternal life to the world those who ate the manna died and were buried and many of them were lost for ever but those who ate the bread which the son of man provided would be eternally saved and now let us take heed to ourselves and make sure that we are among those who eat the bread of god and live let us not be content with lazy waiting but let us actually come to christ and eat the bread of life and believe in the saving of our souls the jews could say evermore give us this bread but it may be feared they went no further let us never rest till by faith we have eaten this bread and can say christ is mine i have tasted that the lord is gracious i know and feel that i am his notes john chapter six verses twenty eight to thirty four verse twenty eight then said they unto him these words begin one of the most important of our lord's discourses 
and one about which the wildest differences of opinion prevail these differences it will be time enough to consider when we come to the passage out of which they arise in the meantime let us remember that the speakers before us were men whom our lord had miraculously fed the day before and on whom he had just urged the paramount importance of seeking food and satisfaction for their souls for anything we can see they were jews in a state of great spiritual ignorance and darkness yet even with them our lord patiently condescends to hold a long conversation teachers who desire to walk in christ's steps must aim at this kind of patience and be willing to talk with and teach the darkest and most ignorant of men it needs wisdom faith and patience what shall we do works of god this question is the language of men who were somewhat aroused and impressed but still totally in the dark about the way to heaven they feel that they are in the wrong road and that they ought to do something but they are utterly ignorant of what to do and their only notion is the old self-righteous one of the natural man i must do something i must perform some works to please god and by admission to heaven this seems to me the leading idea of the question before us your command to labor or work for the meat that endureth pricks our conscience we admit that we ought to do something tell us what we must do and we will try to do it it is a case of a conscience partially aroused and put on its defense groping after light it is like the rich young man who came running to our lord and saying what good thing shall i do matthew chapter nineteen verse sixteen the expression what shall we do would be more literally rendered what do we or what must we do or what are we to do the expression that we might work might have been rendered that we might labor it is the same greek word that is translated in the previous verse labor the expression the works of god cannot of course mean the same works that god works it means the works that please god that are agreeable to god's mind and in accordance with god's will thus first corinthians chapter fifteen verse fifty eight and chapter sixteen verse ten this is the view of glacius this question what shall we do we must remember ought never to be despised though it may often be the lazy expression of languid religious feeling just half awakened it is at any rate much better than having no feeling at all the worst part of many persons spiritual condition lies here that they are quite indifferent about their salvation they never ask what shall we do many no doubt content themselves with saying what shall we do and like those of whom we are reading never get any further but on the other hand in many cases what shall i do is the beginning of eternal life the first step toward heaven the first breath of grace the first spiritual pulsation the jews on the day of pentecost said what must we do saul when the lord met him near damascus said lord what wilt thou have me to do the philippian jailer said what must i do to be saved whenever therefore we hear a person ask the question about his soul what shall i do we must try to help him and put him in the right way we never know what it may lead to it may perhaps end in nothing and prove a mere temporary feeling but it may also come to something and end in the conversion of a soul verse twenty nine jesus answered this work believe sent in this verse our lord takes hold of the expression used by the jews about work and answers them according to their state of mind did they ask what work they should do let them know that the first thing god called them to do was to believe on his son 
the Messiah whom he had sent, and whom they saw before them. When our Lord calls faith the work of God, we must not suppose that he means here that it is the work of his spirit and his gift. This is undoubtedly true, but not the truth of the text. He only means that believing is the work that pleases God, and most agreeable to God's will and mind. Of course, every well-instructed Bible reader will remember that, strictly speaking, believing is so far from being a work that it is the very opposite of working. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted to him for righteousness. Romans chapter 4 verse 5. But it is evident that our Lord accommodates his manner of speaking to the ignorant minds with which he had to deal. Thus St. Paul calls the doctrine of faith the law of faith, Romans chapter 3 verse 27. It is much the same as if we said to an ignorant but awakened inquirer after salvation, who fancies he can do great things for his soul, you talk of doing, but know that the first thing to be done is to believe on Christ. This is the first step towards heaven. You have done nothing until you believe. This is the thing that pleases God most. Without faith it is impossible to please him. This is the hardest thing, after all. Nothing will test the reality of your feelings so much as a willingness to believe on Christ, and cease from your own works. Begin, therefore, by believing. The very attempt to believe in such a case might prove useful. Let us note in this verse the marvelous wisdom with which our Lord suited his language to the minds of those he spoke to. It should be the constant aim of a religious teacher not merely to teach truth, but to teach truth wisely and with tact, so as to arrest the attention of those he teaches. Half the religious teaching in the churches and schools of our day is entirely thrown away for want of tact and power of adaptation in imparting it. To profess truth is one thing, to be able to impart it wisely quite another. Let us note in this verse the high honor our Lord puts upon faith in himself. He makes it the root of all religion, the foundation stone of his kingdom, the very first step toward heaven. Christians sometimes talk ignorantly about faith and works as if they were things that could be compared with one another as equals, or opposed to one another as enemies. But let them observe here that faith in Christ is so immeasurably the first thing in Christianity, that in a certain sense it is the great work of works. In a certain sense it is the seed and root of all religion, and we can do nothing until we believe. In short, the right answer to, what must I do, is, believe. Verse 30. They said therefore unto him. The secret unbelief of the Jews begins to come out in this verse. Nothing so thoroughly reveals the hearts of men as a summons to believe on Christ. Exhortations to work excite no prejudice and enmity. It is the exhortation to believe that offends. What sign showest thou, then? The word thou in this sentence is emphatic in the Greek. It is as though the Jews said, who art thou, indeed, to talk in this way? What miraculous evidence of thy messiahship hast thou got to show? There is an evident sneer or sarcasm in the question. That we may see and believe thee. This seems to mean that we may see in the miracle wrought unanswerable proof that thou art the messiah, and seeing the miracle may thus be able to believe thee. This is the common language of many unconverted hearts. They want to see first, and then to believe. But this is inverting God's order. Faith comes first, and sight will follow. 
There is a difference that ought to be marked between the believing thee of this verse and the believing on him whom he hath sent of the preceding verse. Believing on is saving faith. Believing alone is merely believing a person to speak the truth. The devils believe Christ, but do not believe on Christ. We believe John, but do not believe on him. What dost thou work? It seems at first most extraordinary that men who had seen such a miracle as that of feeding the five thousand with five loaves, and had been themselves of the number fed, and this only twenty-four hours before, could ask such a question as this. Our first thought is, that no greater sign or miracle could have been shown, but they speak as if it was forgotten. Surely when we see such proofs of the extreme dullness and deadness of man's heart, we have no reason to be surprised at what we see among professing Christians. Bucer and Grotius suggest that the speakers here can hardly be those who were witnesses of the miracle of feeding the five thousand. But I see no need for the suggestion, when we look round us and observe what human nature is capable of, or even look at the book of Exodus and see how soon Israel in the wilderness forgot the miracles they had seen. Let us remember that this demand for a sign or great miracle was common during our Lord's ministry. It seems to have been a habit of mind among the Jews. St. Paul says, The Jews require a sign. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. They were always deceiving themselves with the idea that they wanted more evidence, and pretending that if they had this evidence they would believe. Thousands in every age do just the same. They live on waiting for something to convince them, and fancying that if they were convinced they would be different men in religion. The plain truth is that it is want of heart, not want of evidence, that keeps people back from Christ. The Jews had signs, and evidences and proofs of Christ's Messiahship in abundance, but they would not see them. Just so, many a professed unbeliever of our day has plenty of evidence around him, but he will neither look at it nor examine it. So true it is that none are so blind as those that will not see. Quisnell remarks, The atheist is still seeking after proofs of a deity, though he walks every day amidst apparent miracles. We should observe that the Jews were willing enough to honor Christ as a prophet. It was the doctrine of faith in him that they could not receive. Christ the teacher is always more popular than Christ the sacrifice and substitute. Verse 31. Our fathers, manna, written to eat. The intention of the Jews in saying what they do in this verse is plain. They evidently implied a disparaging comparison between our Lord and Moses, and our Lord's miracle of feeding the multitude and the feeding of Israel with manna. It is as though they said, Although thou didst work a miracle yesterday, thou hast done nothing greater than the thing that happened in the days when our fathers were fed with manna in the wilderness. The sign that thou hast given is not so great a sign as that which Moses gave our fathers when he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Why then should we be called on to believe thee? What proof have we that thou art a prophet greater than Moses? The word manna would have been more correctly rendered the manna, i.e., the well-known and famous manna. Let us note in this verse how prone men are to refer back at once to things done in the days of their fathers, when saving religion is pressed home on their consciences. The woman of Samaria began to talk about our father Jacob. Art thou greater than our father Jacob? John chapter 4, verse 12. The Pharisees built the sepulchres of the prophets. 
Luke chapter 11 verse 47. Dead teachers have always more authority than living ones. Let us mark that the miraculous feeding of Israel in the wilderness with manna is spoken of by the Jews as a notorious historical fact. Our Lord, moreover, in the following verse, entirely assumes the truth of the miracle. The modern attempts to deny or explain away the miraculous facts recorded in the Old Testament are here, as well as elsewhere, entirely irreconcilable with the manner in which they are always spoken of in the New Testament. He that denies the Old Testament miracles is assaulting the knowledge and veracity of Christ and the Apostles. They believed them, and spoke of them as historical facts. We never need be ashamed of being on their side. Let us observe the acquaintance with Scripture which the Jews exhibit. They quote the 78th Psalm, verse 24 and 25, as a sufficient proof of the fact that they had just mentioned. A certain knowledge of Scripture, unhappily, may often be found in a very unbelieving heart. Knowledge of the letter of Scripture, at any rate, seems to have been very common among the Jews. See Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Whether or not they applied the sentence they quoted to Moses, rather than God, I think admits of a question. Our Lord's words, in the following verse, would rather lead one to think that they meant that Moses gave them bread from heaven. Verse 32. Then Jesus, verily, Moses gave you not that bread. The object of our Lord in this verse is very plain. He replied to the argument of the Jews that the miracle of the manna was a greater miracle than any he had come into the world to work, and that Moses was consequently a greater prophet than he was. Yet in the words he uses, it is not very easy to settle where the stress should be laid, and what is the precise word on which the point of the answer rests. A. Some think that it means, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but God. They lay the stress on Moses. B. Some think that it means, Moses did not give you bread from the real heaven of heavens, where God the Father dwells, but only a material food from the upper part of that atmosphere which surrounds this earth. They lay the stress on heaven. C. Some think that it means, Moses did not give the true spiritual bread from heaven, though he gave you bread. They lay the stress on that bread. The second of these opinions seems to me quite inadmissible. The distinction between the heaven where God dwells and the upper region of our atmosphere was not, I believe, in our Lord's mind when he used the language he uses here. Moreover, it cannot be denied that the manna, though only material food, was heavenly food, i.e. food supplied by God's miraculous interposition. The true view seems to me to be contained in the first and third opinions taken together. The Greek bears it out by putting the word not in the very forefront of the sentence. It was not Moses who gave you that bread from heaven, and even the bread that was given you was not that true bread which endures to everlasting life. But my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. The use of the present tense should be noticed in this sentence. The idea seems to be, what Moses could not give you, even the true bread which feeds the soul, my Father does give you, and is actually giving you at this moment, in that he gives you myself. The expression, giveth you, must not be supposed to imply actual reception on the part of the Jews. It rather means giving, in the sense of offering for acceptance, a thing which those to whom it is offered may not receive. It is a very remarkable saying, and one of those which seems to me to prove unanswerably that Christ is God's gift to the whole world, 
that his redemption was made for all mankind, that he died for all and is offered to all. It is like the famous text, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, John chapter 3, verse 16, and God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. It is a gift, no doubt, which is utterly thrown away, like many other gifts of God, to man, and is profitable to none but those that believe. But that God nevertheless does in a certain sense actually give his Son, as the true bread from heaven, even to the wicked and unbelieving, appears to me incontrovertibly proved by the words before us. It is a remarkable fact that Erskine, the famous Scotch seceder, based his right to offer Christ to all, on these very words, and defended himself before the General Assembly of the Kirk of Scotland, on the strength of them. He asked the moderator to tell him what Christ meant when he said, My Father giveth you the true bread from heaven, and got no answer. The truth is, I venture to think, that the text cannot be answered by the advocates of an extreme view of a particular redemption. Fairly interpreted, the words mean that in some sense or another, the Father does actually give the Son to those who are not believers. They warrant preachers and teachers in making a wide, broad, full, free, unlimited offer of Christ to all mankind without exception. Even Hutcheson, the Scotch divine, though a strong advocate of particular redemption, remarks, Even such as are, at present, but carnal and unsound, are not secluded from the offer of Christ, but upon right terms may expect that he will be gifted to them. The expression true in this place when applied to bread means true as opposed to that which is only typical, emblematical, and temporal. The manna was undoubtedly real true food for the body, but it was a type of a far better food and was itself a thing which could not benefit the soul. Christ was the true spiritual food of which the manna was the type. Examples of true in this sense may be seen in John chapter 1 verse 9, chapter 15, verse 1, Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 2, chapter 9, verse 24. Verse 33. The bread of God is that, etc. At first sight, this verse seems to mean that Christ coming down from heaven and giving life unto the world is the true bread of God, the divine food of man's soul. But it may well be doubted whether this is the precise meaning of the Greek words. I think with Rollock, Bengal, Scholefield, Alfred, and others, that they would be more correctly rendered, the bread of God is that bread which cometh down from heaven. a. For one thing, the Jews do not appear to have understood our Lord as yet to speak directly of himself, or of any person, else why should they have said, Lord, give us this bread? Moreover, they did not murmur when they heard these words. b. For another thing, our Lord does not appear as yet to reveal fully that He was the bread of God. He reserves this till the thirty-fifth verse, and then declares it. At present He only gives a general intimation of a certain divine, life-giving bread. c. For another thing, it is more in keeping with the gradual unfolding of truth, which appears so strikingly in this chapter, to suppose that our Lord begins with a general statement, than to suppose that He speaks at once of Himself personally. First, one, the bread generally, then two, I am the bread, then three, the bread is my flesh, then four, except ye eat the flesh and drink the blood, no life, etc. Such seem the gradual steps by which our Lord leads on his hearers in this wonderful chapter. 
I freely admit that the point is doubtful. Happily, whether we read, The bread of God is He, or The bread of God is that bread, the doctrine is sound, and scriptural, and edifying. The expression, The bread of God, seems equivalent to the expression of the preceding verse, The true bread. It is that real satisfying food for the soul which God has provided. The expression, Which cometh down from heaven, is an assertion of the divine origin of that spiritual food which God had provided. Like the manna, it came down from heaven, but in a far higher, fuller, and deeper sense than the manna did. It was that personal bread, of which they would soon hear more distinctly. The expression, giveth life to the world, implies a contrast between the bread of God and the manna. The manna only supplied the hunger of the twelve tribes of Israel, viz. six hundred thousand men and their families. The bread of God was for the whole world, and provided eternal life for every member of Adam's family who would eat of it, whether Jew or Gentile. We should mark again what a strong argument these words supply in favor of the doctrine of Christ being God's gift to all. That all the world has not life from Christ, and does not believe in Him, is undoubtedly true. But that life is provided in Christ, and salvation sufficient for the world, appears to be the natural interpretation of the text. Verse 34. Then said they, Lord, give us this bread. There is a striking resemblance between the thought expressed in this verse and the thought of the Samaritan woman when she heard of the living water that Christ could give. Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. John chapter 4, verse 15. In both cases we see desire called forth and excited by our Lord's words. There is a vague sense of something great and good being close at hand, and a vague wish expressed to have it. In the case of the Samaritan woman, the wish proved the first spark in a thorough conversion to God. In the case of the Jews before us, the wish seems to have been nothing more than the desire of the slothful, and to have gone no further. Wishing and admiring are not conversion. Let us note, carefully, that there is nothing hitherto to show that the Jews understood our Lord to call himself the bread of God, or the true bread, that there was such a thing as the true and satisfying bread, that it must be the same as that meat which endureth to everlasting life, they seem to have concluded, and that it was something which our Lord could give they inferred. But there is not a word to make us think they saw it at present to mean Christ himself. This is a weighty argument in favor of that view of the preceding verse which I have tried to support, viz., that it ought to be translated, The bread of God is that bread, not he. There is some probability in Lightfoot's remark that our Lord's hearers, like most Jews, had their minds stuffed with foolish and superstitious notions about great banquets and feasts, which they expected Messiah to give them whenever he appeared. They had a tradition that Leviathan and Behemoth were to be slain, and their flesh made into a great feast for Israel when Messiah came. Our Lord, possibly, had this tradition in his mind, and desired to turn the minds of the Jews to the true food which Messiah had come to give. End of section 28